Welcome to SocialCast, the weekly podcast talking about enduring societal hurdles in the United States and how socialism offers a way past them. Hey there, welcome back to SocialCast. This is Lance. And I'm Derek. Tonight we'll be discussing Universal Basic Income, or UBI for short. UBI is a really interesting topic, but before we get into it too too in-depth, I think we should define what that term means. Universal Basic Income is essentially a stipend that we receive to pay for our most basic and essential necessities. So when we talk about UBI, um, what we're not talking about is housing. We're not talking about uh, money that goes to utilities or any kind of anti-hunger initiative. When we're talking about UBI, what we're talking about really is a way to help make sure people have toothpaste and toilet paper, and feminine hygiene products. And clothing, and fuel for their cars, and the ability to conduct maintenance on their cars. And the, the first thing that most people say is, but if we're just giving people money, they're just going to go out and buy frivolous things like televisions or video game systems. Okay. Which that's fine just because you live in poverty doesn't mean you don't need to have some form of diversion and that you're not allowed to enjoy life and have some form of diversion and entertainment and even if they are going out and buying a tv there are only so many tvs a person reasonably is going to buy and further you go out and you buy a tv and that is money going into the economy that If you're in a jurisdiction that has a sales tax, you just pay taxes. You just supported, you know, assuming you bought your TV from probably a big box store, let's be honest here. You just put money into jobs for people in your local area. But point being, even even when you're buying frivolous items like TVs, you're still contributing to the economy and it's still being productive just because you're not, you know, spending your UBI check on, you know, rice and wheat doesn't mean you're not still, you know, building into the economy. I think that's a really important thing to talk about when we're discussing UBI as well, because there shouldn't be any kind of gatekeeping about what people are spending their money on. This is no different than a tax refund check. And Nobody would dream of telling you how you can or cannot spend your tax refund check. So why 
is it anybody's business what somebody receiving a UBI check is spending that money on? And there's also a difference to be drawn here between a monthly UBI check and an annual, relatively unpredictable um, tax return check, which not everyone gets a tax return. Some people choose to pay taxes at the end of the year. When you have UBI, that's a monthly budgeted income. That's, you know, you need to say, I get $1,200 a month UBI and I get $1,100 a month from my job. So my total monthly budget is $2,300 versus getting that check when you file your tax return and you get, let's say you get $1,500 back that's on top of your monthly budget. That is frivolous money. It's not going to go into your utilities because hopefully you've already had your utilities met. You've already had your food met. Hopefully, again, you know, everyone's situation is different. But that's not budget money. This would be part of your monthly budget. And you're not going to go and spend $500, $600 of your budgeted money on frivolous luxuries. When we're talking about UBI, there's a, a lot of question about how to calculate how much money to give people and how to calculate who gets that money. And the, the answers to those questions vary pretty wildly from one proposal to the next. One of the most comprehensive dollar amounts that I've seen for a, a universal basic income stipend each month is $1,200. And I say that it's comprehensive because that's well-researched. That, that dollar amount is calculated at what would be needed to meet the cost of living for the average American while also working a full-time minimum wage job. Obviously, there is going to be an immense difference between the financial requirements of someone living in um, the American South or the upper Midwest versus someone who lives in Los Angeles or San Francisco or New York City. The cost of living in those latter locations is enormous and just absolutely mind-boggling, while the cost of living in the former is a very small percentage of that. It's going to be virtually impossible to say every single American citizen is going to get X dollars because those X dollars or those $1,200 going to someone living in the you know upper Midwest in North Dakota or in Minnesota, and even between those two, even between North Dakota and Minnesota, there's a difference. And so the $1,200 is going to go so much further for that person to the point that it could even adjust what class they identify as versus that $1,200 going to someone who's living in San Francisco or someone who's living in Midtown Manhattan. It's not going to be as impactful and it's not going to be as significant as it would be for the former person. So are you advocating for a regionally determined UBI instead of a federally determined UBI? I would say in the beginning stages of that, I think that would be necessary. 
I think there's other elements to consider, and that's the in, the existing incomes of the people who live in those areas. Obviously, if you're living in San Francisco, you either have the income to support that, or you are in a living situation where you have four or five other roommates occupying a two-bedroom apartment. And I say that as an example because I know people living in San Francisco, and that is that they are servers, they're in the hospitality industry, they make minimum wage plus tips, and they live in a two-bedroom apartment with four other roommates. I think a regionally determined UBI is actually a, a really solid policy response, because we can look at, say, an average for the, the whole country, but that's going to take everybody from, like you said, Midwest farmers to Manhattan executives into consideration. And that's going to be a pretty wide disparity between how far that money is going to be able to go. Well, am I interrupting your thought if I say something? Okay. So I think where I was trying to go with my two different people living in the same place is... Does the person who has, in one single job, the financial ability to live in San Francisco need a UBI check? Do they need that income? That's a really good question. Versus that person who is working minimum wage and is, you know, living with several other roommates, does that person need the UBI? Obviously. Clearly. So you have these two people, one is not going to need it, the other does. So this isn't going to be really something that every single American is going to be getting the exact same amount every single month. And not every single American is going to get a UBI check. Absolutely. Because there, there are a number of people who don't need it. So let's talk about who should get UBI and who probably doesn't need UBI to survive. Right now, the poverty level for for a single American is $12,760. So anybody making less than $12,760 is living in poverty. There are a lot of people that are living below that threshold. And those are the people that when we're talking about implementing a, a system of universal basic income, those are the people that we're specifically targeting to improve the economic quality of their life. Let's, Other than the people who are subsisting below the poverty level, because let's let's be honest, it's not living below the poverty level. No. They're barely surviving. Other than that, there are still a lot of people that could use that help that the, the UBI check would represent. And they're, they're people who currently are living paycheck to paycheck. They might be comfortable, but they don't have any ability to respond to a financial emergency like their car breaking down. And concept of UBI really benefits all of these people. Let's talk about the people who don't need UBI. Um, the obvious ones, Jeff Bezos, Bill Elon Gates. Musk, yeah. Bill Gates, the, the big ones. Obviously, these are people who would not even notice 
getting a UBI. I think aside from even the the obvious wealthy people that don't need a, a UBI stipend, there there are a lot of people that aren't as recognizably wealthy that don't need that money. And I think for for purposes of our conversation, and this is not a policy conversation by any stretch of the imagination, but I think for purposes of our conversation, we should set that threshold at about $90,000 because 13% of the population of the United States makes more than $90,000 and 87% of the country does not. So when, when we're talking about who should and who should not get a UBI stipend, I think that's a really good threshold because $90,000 is enough to support you through almost everything. There are very few places in the country where that, that kind of salary is not going to make sure your basic needs are met. It might be a little more of a struggle in a place like New York or San Francisco where the cost of living is just so exorbitantly high, but even in Manhattan where the rent for a 900 square foot apartment is about $3,500, $90,000 is still going to be more than enough to pay the rent. The rent in Manhattan would be one third of your, your total annual income. I think it's important to address the next most widely criticized aspect of a UBI program, and that's how are you going to pay for that? And that's a perfectly reasonable question, because even if we're only talking about the 87% of the population above the age of 18 that makes less than $90,000 per year, we're still looking at about $2.6 trillion a year to support a universal basic income system. This is, believe it or not, one of the few situations where our current budget does not meet the need. Correct. Even if you take all the money for defense, all the money for the police, we still don't have the money to make this happen. I mean, realistically, $2.6 trillion is more than half of the total federal budget. So it's a hard sell to Mm -hmm. look at this and say, we need to find a way to make this work because there are a lot of things that would have to get cut in order to fund it. Absolutely. And and to make those cuts, we would inevitably have to look at other programs such as whatever universal health care programs come into existence and whatever kind of universal housing and hunger fighting initiatives are developed on a federal scale, those would have to be reanalyzed to see how do we make all this work. Unless, of course, we go back to a system of taxation that existed before Reagan took office in the 80s. Because with the the progressive tax system as it was before Reaganomics and his ridiculous trickle-down economic theory, um, we, we saw a much different tax structure. At the highest end, people were being taxed at 80%. And that's something that has not been the case for the last 40 years. And that's why we've seen gross reductions in programs like Social Security and Disability 
Medicare and Medicaid. We have had to cut those programs. Education is another perfect example because we eliminated the tax revenue from the highest earning section of, of the population. So we would need to bring back that progressive incremental tax system that levies these higher tax rates on higher income brackets. And we would also need to bring back a more comprehensive and consistent corporate tax structure with far fewer loopholes than currently exist. Right now there are corporations existing in this country paying virtually nothing in taxes or paying less than the common average American. Or paying actually nothing. Or paying actually nothing. Or or corporations that have moved their headquarters to other countries to avoid having to pay taxes here in the United States where they conduct their business. And this has resulted in a tremendous loss of revenue. Back when we built the freeway system and back when we were rolling out the New Deal, essentially, we had this tax revenue. We were able to fund these massive super projects that under today's tax structure would be a pipe dream. We would have to bring that back either in the same form or even in a more aggressive form to have any chance of paying for this UBI. And this, is, I think, is where we need to talk about the velocity of a dollar. So when we talk about the velocity of money, what we're talking about is how money moves through the economy. And there are, are two basic components to that. The first is a wage worker. Let's say a wage worker makes $10 an hour and they've just done one hour of work and now we're looking at, the, at that $10 that they just made. They're going to go into their community. They, they're going to buy, let's say, a meal that costs $10. Now that $10 has moved from the wage worker to the restaurant that they're, they're eating from. The restaurant pays that $10 to their employee who maybe doesn't have a car. And so to get home that night, they call a taxi or an Uber and they pay $10 to their driver. Now that that money has moved from the wage worker to the restaurant, to the restaurant worker, to the taxi driver. And velocity of money is a, an idea that when you give money to people who have less means, they're going to spend it. And that money is going to keep circulating through the economy and generating more and more velocity. Whereas once you get to somebody like Jeff Bezos, that $10 stops moving. That $10 doesn't go any further. It doesn't get reinvested into the local economy. It doesn't get reinvested into the federal economy. It's not making any moves because those people are hoarding their wealth. So they are actually performing a kind of economic assassination of that $10 by removing all of that, that monetary velocity. And this is where people who occupy the quickly vanishing middle income brackets, 
the people who exist comfortably above the poverty line, but who are not yet to the point of making 90 to 100 to 120,000 or higher, people who, who make up the bulk of the American labor force, who have the ability to get that $10, take it, and they can save some of it. Maybe they take that $10 and they go home and they spend $5 on dinner that night. And then they actually save $5. And what happens when they save those $5 is when the economy turns south and when things aren't as good, they can take what they have in their savings and they can take that money and put it into the economy and keep things running until it picks back up. Or they are saving towards a specific purchase, which is still going to be money that's inevitably invested back into the economy. It could be a a vacation. It could be a new car. It could be an addition or an improvement to their home. And that's going to require contract work of some sort. No matter how you look at it, when when you have someone in a, a lower income bracket than the ultra wealthy, even if they're saving 50% of their income, that's still money that's going to re-enter the economy, which is not something that can be said for the money that Bill Gates sits on. To get an idea of how UBI works, let's look at a system that is already in place that functions as universal basic income, the social security income that is allotted to seniors, people over the age of 65, or people with disabilities. This is a provision that is granted to these people who we acknowledge as no longer participating in the workforce, or who are unable to participate in the workforce. Now, those are two very different programs. So Social Security is calculated with the idea that it's going to go to retired people who are also drawing some sort of pension from their work, either through a 401k or some other retirement program. Social Security disability income is calculated at a slightly higher rate because it assumes that the, the person who is receiving an SSDI payment is not drawing on that same reservoir of saved benefits. Either way, we're looking at a a replacement for traditional earned income. At the end of the assessment, people on Social Security disability don't have any other form of income. They might also qualify for SNAP benefits, they might also qualify for Section 8, but all all of their expenditures are coming out of this relatively small SSDI payment, whereas Social Security is intended to augment a retirement income. So it's it's not supposed to be an exclusively livable wage, but something that is added on to money that you already have coming in. And I think for the purposes of our conversation about universal basic income, it's probably best to focus on SSI as opposed to SSDI. Yes. Because SSDI is going to, at, at some point, it's going to need to be reevaluated because it doesn't provide enough for people to live. It doesn't provide enough for people to 
do anything but the most basic of things. Like you said, it is intended to augment other income, much like how in virtually all proposed UBI systems, the UBI stipend supplements existing income that you're already gaining through employment. What is really happening with many, many people who rely on Social Security income post-retirement is they don't have their pension, they don't have a retirement income to rely on, and so they are living entirely on their SSI checks, which is simply not meeting the standard of living anywhere. There are lessons we can learn from Social Security income throughout its history, and we can learn a single flat payment for every single person eligible is not going to make it work. You know, if you're if you're making $1,200 in Kansas, you're probably going to be able to make it work. If you're making $1,200 in San Francisco, mm-mm. it's, it's going to take a lot more help than just that check. And I can, I can already anticipate an argument against this kind of proposal that relies on the idea of people being able to move. If you can't afford mm-hmm. the cost of living where you are on this flat rate that everybody is getting, then you can move somewhere where that dollar has more power. And that's simply not realistic. Well, it's not realistic. It doesn't acknowledge cultural ties that you might have with an area. It doesn't acknowledge the ties that you might have with dependency that you have on other social avenues. You might not be able to move away from your family because you might lose childcare. You don't want to, you know, disrupt a child's education by taking them from one school system to a radically different one. Well, and the social support network, both for adults and for children, is vitally important and uprooting your entire life to move to a place where you can afford to live on something like UBI is psychologically and socially damaging and isolating. The other thing about trying to tell people, well, if you can't afford to live here, you should move, it doesn't acknowledge the manipulation that is being done to the housing market, Um, which is another thing that really needs to be discussed is how much of our monthly budget goes to housing because you know if you make four thousand dollars a month and your rent is thirty five hundred dollars a month that means you have five hundred dollars to drive to eat to clothe yourself versus if you make four thousand dollars a month and your rent is eleven hundred dollars a month that leaves $2,900 for you to drive, for you to shop, for you to eat. I have to question right now the interaction between UBI and a program like SSI or SSDI. Mm-hmm. Because even just now, the more we talk about this, the more I realize that for people collecting SSI, a program that was designed as we've, as we've already said, to supplement retirement income. The simple fact is that over the last four decades, retirement income has all but disappeared. And 
I, I don't think it's reasonable to say that SSI payments should disappear if we were to implement a, a system of UBI. I think that the, the social security system and the social security disability system should still be maintained at the level that they're at now, but that the people receiving those benefits should also receive a UBI stipend. Absolutely. If you are on SSI or you become eligible to be on SSI after the rollout of a UBI, these systems should not be mutually exclusive, but should actually be mutually dependent, where if you're expected to still be working and the expectation is that you still have some sort of retirement income, but you don't have that, you you should have these supplemental incomes supplementing each other. You should have your social security paired with your UBI. And th this is also, it's, it's hard to talk about UBI without also seeing fully fleshed out and fully realized universal housing and universal health care and universal food support because so much of our monthly income goes to those expenses. So much of our our monthly budget goes to paying our rent or our, our house payment or whatever your housing expense is. A lot of our monthly budget goes to car payments and goes to fueling and maintaining our cars. And food, food is expensive. Food is really expensive. And that's assuming that you're buying it at the grocery store and preparing it yourself, which a lot of people don't have the ability to do and are reliant on grab-and-go and fast food and prepared food. Well, and there's there's a really strong argument to be made that people should spend more time preparing their own food. But that is predicated on the idea that you're going to have one job and only one job, that you're not going to be working so many hours that you don't have the capacity to pre prepare your own food. Like, everything about our, our capitalist economy has been set up or evolved from that setup to what we know it today. Taco Bell exists because people didn't have time to make their own food. I mean, throughout history there have been examples of things like taverns or inns that provide food. The primary purchases of those, those meals were people who were traveling, and so they're not carrying their groceries with them. They're staying in a room that probably doesn't have adequate food preparation space or capacity. And so this, this idea of prepared food has really exploded in response to increasing time pressures. When you're busy running from job one to job two and you only have 45 minutes to get there, that's not enough time to go home and make a meal and eat it and clean up after yourself and then head out to your second job. Well, and also how much of how much of our history has had the expectation that you have one person out working the nine to five hourly job 
and then another person at home whose whose job is keeping that home in order washing laundry keeping the house clean and tidy and preparing meals so that the person who is working outside of the house can come home take their tie off sit down and eat and that for a really long time was the the standard of living in the united states a a single income family could be supported on one worker's income even if that family had three children and we're we're not there anymore because we have seen capitalism erode our earning power to such an extent that both parents in a dual parent household have to work single parents have to have more than one job they don't have time to do these things and so ubi is a way to help kind of offset that it, it eliminates the necessity for more than one job for somebody who might be a lower hourly wage worker and in in eliminating the need for that second job it frees up time so that you have more time to live and invest time and energy and your resources in your community in taking care of your home, improving your home, whatever you want to spend that time on. And so there, there are a lot of social benefits, aside from just economic benefits, to the implementation of a, a UBI. I concur. We think about the ultimate socialist utopia like we see in Star Trek or in any future utopian paradise setting, and we don't see a currency exchange. We don't see a monetary economy. We see an economy of personal fulfillment, of gaining knowledge and enriching yourself and society and the people around you. When your housing is taken care of for you and when your health care is taken care of for you and when your food is taken care of for you, that is so much time and so much... Financial burden. That is relieved from you and you can say I'm going to you know maybe you still need to work to supplement your income to maintain the lifestyle you want but if you can work in such a way that you are that you are doing what you are passionate about and what you love doing and maybe you can only do that 10 to 15 hours a week and you that or at least you're only getting paid for it 10 to 15 hours a week that should be enough no one should have to be trapped at a job 40 hours a week. I think it's really important for us to look back in time at something like classical Greece, where you had artists and philosophers and poets who weren't constantly worried about what they needed to do so that they could make sure that they had a meal that day. And what we know is that they created beautiful, lasting works of art that have continued to provide cultural currency. Even all this time, 1,500 or more years later. They created pieces of art. They developed philosophy as we know it. They developed systems of analysis and thought that we are still using today, they developed a system of government that we still use today. 
you know, this is a society that has contributed that has contributed so immensely to our modern society and that had no real sense of of a day-to-day -day monetary exchange for basic goods and services. Yes, there was money. Yes, there was an exchange of monetary instruments, but not to the extensiveness that we see today, and certainly not on the scale we see today. I like to think about Star Trek a lot when I'm talking to people about socialism, so I appreciate you bringing that up a minute ago. I just like to talk about Star Trek. <laughs> <laughs> That's valid. At all times. But the, the economic implications of a post-capitalist, post-capital society are almost unenumerable because we're we're looking at a society that every basic need is met everyone is given shelter everyone is given food everyone is given clothes they don't have to worry about how they're going to pay their light bill they don't have independently owned transportation most of the time why would you want a car when there's trans a, the transporter. a, a transporter these are fully realized socialist policies in action. And I think the, the universe of Star Trek benefits substantially from that post-capitalism kind of shift because it, it has enabled people to focus on developing advanced engineering so that they can go out into the wider universe and look for other signs of life and interact with other signs of life and at the same time that they're doing this people are still doing jobs mm -hmm. people are still going to the academy they're still learning to be engineers and doctors they're still doing the work to keep society functioning because that's what everybody inherently wants to do. I think it is a logical fallacy to say, if we give people this money, they're not going to do anything. They're not going to be productive and they're not going to contribute to society. Because for all we know, our next Einstein doesn't have time to work out new scientific theories or mathematical theories because they're busy flipping burgers and ringing up people's groceries and running from hustle to hustle. And I think you bring up a good point there where when we hear that objection of, well, if we just give people money, they're not going to work. And that really, uh, that really forces us to shine a light on what we consider work. When we look at what is being talked about when when people raise the argument of oh well people just won't work it's people won't work in those unfulfilling dead end not going to go anywhere jobs like flipping burgers like ringing up groceries like running a check stand at target and i think it's really important to remind everyone that at this point we've already started seeing the automatic automation of these tasks. We've already started seeing the self-checkouts at our grocery mm -hmm. stores. We know that there are machines that have been developed to prepare food in a fast food environment. 
We know that in Japan there are robots that are capable of safely and comfortably maneuvering um, hospital patients so that they can change their bed linens. The more we see automation of currently human-powered tasks, the more we're going to need to look at something like UBI so that we can just make sure that our population is able to sustain itself until we reach the point where so much of that is automated that we can we can reasonably exist post-capitalism. And we also look at the counter to that and we see so many people whose day-to-day hobbies and desires are productive. My hobby is gardening. My, I derive great enjoyment from literally growing food. Sure, I might not be a large-scale commercial farm, you know, providing a specific crop for hundreds of thousands of people, but I can produce squash, I can produce corn, tomatoes, peppers. These are things that I find enjoyment in laboring outside, working on a schedule and knowing specific things. That's what I would want to do. It's just not monetarily beneficial for me to do that right now. I, my, my part, what? Start that over and say monetarily compensatory. Because it is monetarily beneficial. Yes. Every, every tomato you grow is a tomato you don't have to pay money yes. for. I, I'm not collecting a wage for the work that I'm doing in this. Um, but when I'm outside on my own property gardening and harvesting vegetables that I've grown, I'm not getting paid for that. There's, there's the distal extant cost saving where every vegetable I've grown out of my own yard is a vegetable I don't have to buy. But as far as an hourly wage, I'm not getting $10 an hour to work out of my garden. That's purely my own effort and my own energy. Similarly, my partner makes quilts. He makes clothing, he makes other sewn textile goods. Those are important. Derek is actually wearing one of them right now because it's freezing cold in this room. (laughs) These are essential things that need to exist in our society. And this is his art form. This is what he does for fun. If he didn't have to rely on his employment to receive, you know, monetary compensation, this is what he would be doing with the bulk of his time and either selling them to whoever would buy them or just he's producing them regardless of whether he's selling them. So they already exist. And I think what we would see is a lot of people focusing more on those things that bring them joy that might not necessarily provide immediate financial compensation. We have literally no way of knowing how many brilliant playwrights are currently being denied the ability to express their artistic endeavor because they're they're caught up in the rat race to survive. We don't know how many sculptors or painters or composers we are sidelining by making it so that they have to focus on financial attainment instead of their their psycho-emotional fulfillment. And I think investing 
our our capital via tax revenue into a system that supports people so that they do have more time to dedicate to those pursuits is going to reap immense amounts of of cultural benefit and not just basic necessities like your your husband's quilting or clothing making which are both amazing i absolutely must point out but if if he weren't worried about a financial motivation how long does it take him to create a quilt a whole quilt a whole quilt from start to finish can take anywhere from two to six weeks okay so in an average 52 week year 648 is eight that's anywhere from eight to 26 quilts that he could make yeah. And that's 8 to 26 households that now have a beautiful, durable, more well-crafted piece of, of furniture, bedding, whatever you want to call it, that, that is going to serve a purpose to them. And it, it's not the fast, consumer-driven IKEA blankets that fall apart literally when you look at them, but it's... It's inherently valuable. And I think when we're talking about something like implementing UBI, what we're kind of tangentially but not not really acknowledgeably talking about is those those tiny meaningful things that our our economic culture has steered us away from. I don't even know if I can rephrase it any better than that. <laughs> um, but just like you were saying, like there's there's so much dependency nowadays on having multiple jobs and not having the free time to pursue your own personal interests. And sure, for a lot of people, maybe your personal interest is binging a series on Netflix or finishing the newest video game, and that's absolutely fine. There's nothing wrong with that. That's We want a society where everyone is fulfilled and happy in the world they live in. If that's what makes you happy, do it. And even, you when, don't, you're, even when you're looking at something like binging a Netflix series or playing a video game all the way through, those might not seem productive, but they're still economic investments. Absolutely. And that, I think, is, is the thing that it behooves us to focus on. A lot of times, and this is something that I... A lot of times, and this is something that I am personally really passionate about because I am a gamer. A lot of times, people will be looked down on for playing video games. But video games represent a really big economic slice of the pie. And we're talking about something that a lot of people look at as for children, but children don't have 60 to $120 to drop on a video game. Simple fact. Yeah. They can't afford a $500 PlayStation 5. And so even, even when we're looking at something that doesn't seem to be productive, it still has economic value because it's, it's that velocity of money. It's still moving from here to there and stimulating the economy on its way through it. 
I think that just about does it for our talk about universal basic income. If you guys have questions, feel free to hit us up on Facebook or Twitter. Leave a comment. Let us know what you think. Otherwise, we will be back for the next episode where we're going to be talking about universal healthcare. Shit on a hot tin roof. <laughs> it's going to be a good episode. It will be so fantastic. Thank you guys for joining us today, and we look forward to talking to you next time. Thank you for joining us for this week's Social Cast. Social Cast publishes a new episode every Sunday, so make sure to add us to your podcast library to be notified of new content. Social Cast is available on iTunes, Google Podcasts, and Spotify. Join the conversation with us on social media. Find us on Facebook under Social Cast Podcast and on Twitter at Social Cast Pod. If you're interested in supporting SocialCast, you can find us on patreon.com forward slash SocialCast. <laughs>